Good to see you guys, uh, and thank you, Keith. Uh, I just thought that was really a good note to start our morning off on, and this really is a place you can belong before you believe, and belonging means that we are a community that's based on inclusion, that Christ came to create an inclusive community. That doesn't mean that we don't have truth. You, you can't have love without truth, right? And Keith was even in his statement uh, calling Christians to the truth that we have a God who reconciled the world. Doesn't matter uh, the color of your skin, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter uh, your social status, that this is a community where we come together, that, that the ground is even at the foot of the cross. Amen? And I just really appreciate um, Keith, my friend, uh, just bringing our focus there. Um, I'm going to say a word of prayer and we will jump in to uh, our talk for today. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing each and every soul here. Thank you for each person. Lord, each one of them has a story. Each story matters to you. And God, I just pray that um, that you would lift those up who need encouragement, who may be coming here discouraged and they've been in the worst, had the worst day or the worst season, the worst uh, year of their life, or maybe people are just, they're, they're wanting to explore and find faith. They've been looking for you and they want to find you. They don't know if they just don't know you. They don't know if they can trust you. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. And uh, <clears throat> and Heavenly Father, would you just continue creating this community as an inclusive place of belonging, Lord? Based on your truth, based on your love, but a place where people are drawn to the love of Jesus Christ. We stand in that truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in this series called "What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life," and we've been focusing on a story of, of a, a Bible character named David. Uh, he was uh, a shepherd um, when he was younger, and then he rose to become king. God used him in incredible ways. Now, David wasn't a perfect person by any means. Uh, that's what I love about the Bible. It writes about the good, the bad, and the ugly, like the flaws, everything. And, and David had flaws. He wasn't perfect, but he does set a pattern of faith. There was something in the way that David related and understood God. He had this incredible faith. And um, we're looking particularly at a story found in 1 Samuel um, chapter 30 where David is leading his band of 600 men. They're outlaws at this point because the king at the time had been jealous of David and scared of David because he had the Lord's favor. And so they became outlaws even though they hadn't done anything wrong. And uh, they had been out and away from their families. And when they came back to their family to their town of Ziklag, isn't that a great name? The town of Ziklag. It's like Puyallup, you know, it just has that ring to it. Um, They came to their hometown. They saw plumes of smoke rising. And as they got closer, they saw the reality of what had happened to their hometown. That their their, uh, homes had been burned to the ground. All their wealth had been stolen. And their families had been kidnapped. Uh, Mothers, children, everything was gone. And it was the worst day of David's life. What do you do on the worst day of your life? We've been looking at this story in the last few weeks. Just a few of the lessons that we've seen is when David encounters that moment, he just, he just falls to his knees and, and acknowledges the, the reality and weeps. It says that he and his men wept until they couldn't weep anymore. And rather than ignore it, run past it, uh, or, or settle into it, um, David grieves the moment, grieves the reality of the loss. And I think that's an important, in our world, and, in, and whether it's a church world or the, you know, the, the world that we live in, 
people want to rush past grief, and he grieved the moment. And, and then his men, though, um, because of the grief, they started, some of them started turning bitter, and they wanted to, like, kill David. And it became dangerous for him. But David refused to become bitter. Instead of becoming bitter, he encouraged himself in the Lord. He encouraged himself in the character of God. He had trained himself, even, even in his moments as a shepherd, he had, he had prepared and trained himself for a mo- moment such as this where he loses everything. And rather than, than turn and, and maybe run or fight and engage his, his men or whatever you know people do in those moments, instead of doing any of those things or just giving up, he turns to God and encur- finds encouragement in the strength of the Lord. And then last week, we learned this incredible lesson that, that David sought the Lord. He went to him. He got a, a trusted uh, counselor, a spiritual counselor that he trusted. He, uh, and then he went and spent time with the Lord and just said, Lord, what do I do? And he sought a word for the, from the Lord. And it was, a, it was a timely word, not just a, a general word that he could you know, read from you know, a, a, an ancient text or a, you know, a biblical text, a, you know, a nice principle for life. It was like, I need a word from you for today, for now. Now, the worst day of my life, and God gives him a word for the moment. And today, I, I want to talk to you about a leadership principle that I think is, is, it can change everything if we would learn from David's life. And um, in this passage, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 8, it says, Then David asked the Lord, should I chase the band of raiders? Will I catch them? What, what should I do? And then the Lord spoke to him and said, yes, go after them. You surely will recover everything that was taken from you. And then it says this, so David and his 600 men set out. The men who had, like many of which had wanted to kill him a few moments because they're like, we followed you and we lost everything because of you. The ones who were angry and becoming bitter, um, he, he won them over. And in a moment, because of God's word and because of the leadership of David, uh, all of a sudden 600 men are ready to follow him into battle to go recover what has been lost. And there's something that changed in those men. There's something that, that happened to David and, and the leadership that he had that, that was transformative in that moment. And I, I want to focus on that today. So today we're going to be talking about the gift of sight. How did that, what, did, what happened with David? Um, to set this up, there's a, there's a, a, a man, like a, a story of a, a guy, this is a true story. His name was Admiral Jim Stockdale. How many of you guys have heard of Admiral Jim Stockdale. Is anybody who's heard of that person? Um, he was an admiral in the in the uh, U.S. military. He uh, he was shot down over Vietnam, and he was he became a POW, prisoner of war. Uh, he was put in the, uh, what was uh, known as the Han- uh, Hanoi Hilton, which was like the worst uh, prison camp. Uh, he went he lived there for eight years in not knowing what was going to happen to him. Um, he was tortured over twenty times. Uh, terribly. He was put in isolation. And in the worst place, in the worst season of his life, this, this guy Stockdale became one of the most incredible leaders, uh, that, that is, that the military's ever known. They still do studies on, on this guy. Uh, he, he became a, an inspirational leader for other men who were giving up, who were becoming hopeless, who were becoming bitter, and didn't know how to handle the situation. He, he started inventing ways of dealing with torture that had never been created. He just, he helped men get through those moments and have hope and not give up and deal with the loss, the isolation, the pain, uh, 
um, the hopelessness of are we ever going to get out of here? He, in, he invented a, a, a way of communicating with tapping so that they could communicate and, cur- and encourage each other. And he was such an inspirational leader that there was one moment where it was the, it was like the anniversary of him getting shot down uh, in Vietnam and, and, and becoming a POW. And there was a, a, a guy that had learned his system of communication of tapping and he, he had a broom or not a broom, a, a mop and he was mopping outside of his room and on the anniversary of the day that he was shot down this guy uh, who respected him and who had, who had been inspired by Stockdale in this POW camp tapped out the words hey we love you to him because he was such an inspirational leader I mean this guy was unbelievable and he was asked one day by someone he said well you you survived and you were an inspirational leader in the midst of uh, the guy walked with a limp the rest of his life because of the torture he had been through. Um, a man asked him, "Well, why didn't some of the others make it out?" And he said, "Well, that's easy. The, uh, those were the optimists." He said. He's like, "Well, what do you mean by optimists?" Well, optimists were the ones that always said, "We'll be out by Christmas. We'll be out by Easter. We'll be out by this date." He, he said those were the ones who ended up giving up and dying of a broken heart. And, and, he, and he said the, the guy who was interviewing said he said the most um, electric thing that has stuck with him for his whole life. And it's like been burned into my heart. Listen to this quote. Uh, Stock, Jim Stockdale said this. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. That statement has so much power. He's, he's saying like, he's like, I, you can never, ever, 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 ever give up in the hope that you will prevail, that you will get through this. But you can't be like the optimists that are like, it's going to be Christmas, it's going to be Easter, and set this d- timeline that's unrealistic. You have to confront the reality, the brutal reality of your situation, but at the same time hold the tension that you will prevail. I mean, that is leadership, Right? And that inspired person after person. Probably kept people alive that would have just given up because he had the tenacity, the grit, the faith to confront reality, the brutal reality that he was in. That it could be years, if ever. But he was going to prevail. He would never give up. And it, they end up calling that the, the Stockdale paradox, being able to hold those two tensions. But you could, you could call that the David paradox because in the worst moment when he lost all his wealth, his home's burned to the ground, his family's gone, he's lost much of the respect of his, of his uh, followers and leaders and there, some of them are ready to turn on him. He's lost everything. He, he, he sees the reality, the brutal reality. He doesn't run from it. He weeps and grieves it. He acknowledges it. But then he goes and seeks a word from God. And when God gives him that word, he says, what am I going to do? God says, pursue them and you will recover it all. He walks out of his time with the Lord and he has that unflinching faith in the face of the brutal reality. And then he comes to his men. You can imagine him coming to the 600 men saying, okay, guys, here's what the Lord has shared with me. We're going to pursue. We're going to prevail. We're going to recover it all. Who's with me? And the thing you'll learn as we go into this journey of David, he doesn't force anyone to follow him. How many of you guys know that good leaders, first, they lead themselves? 
before they lead others. Like you respect it. Like good leaders command respect because of their character, because of the moral authority. Something we see in them. And then good leaders also, like they, they don't push people and harangue them into things. They pull them with vision. And what I want to talk to you today is about the gift of sight. The gift of vision. Like when we're in the worst day, the worst moments, the worst seasons of our life, it can be so easy to give up and lose our vision. Now, if you have your notes, you can write this down. The, the first thing is to learn to reorient our vision. There's a few different kind of people, they say. When you look up into the night sky, some people just look and they see the night sky. They just see like the utter darkness out there and the fathomless depths of darkness. And then other people, they'll see just like, look at the beautiful stars. They'll just see the stars. And then there's others who see all the darkness and the vastness, but they focus on the beauty and light of the stars. Which one are you? The story of David teaches us that we have to reorient our vision from the brutality of the moment the, re, the, the terrible reality of the loss and the, and the hurt and the pain and the anger and the betrayal or whatever. It, I don't know your worst day. You do. I've been talking to people the last few weeks and they, they come and give me the exact day, the exact moment, some even the exact minute when the worst day happened. But David teaches us to reorient our vision. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, one important way of reorienting, looking to, looking to the stars, looking to the light, and acknowledging, look, there's darkness, but there's good out there. There's this verse in Isaiah 45, 3. I love this verse. It says, I will give you treasures, says the Lord. This is God saying, I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness. Think about that. God is saying, I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness. God's saying to you and to me and to anyone who would want to to understand spiritual realities that there are some treasures, there are some things that you can only learn when you're in the darkness, when you're in the worst day of your life. There there are some things that, that you can only learn about yourself, about other people, about just this reality, this thing we call life. When you are going through the darkness, the, the question is, are you looking for the hidden treasures? Because it's hidden. It's in the darkness. It's in the dark night. It's in those moments where you feel most alone. You feel most in pain and most in hurt. It, 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 God has said, I have given you treasures hidden in the darkness. And they'll reveal about you, about others, and about him. I was talking with my friend Lee. He gave me permission to share this um, I was talking with Lee this, this, this week, and he, we were talking about this verse, and he said, you know, uh, when my wife got cancer, we were told that she was, like, when she was doing treatment, like, doctor was like, I don't normally tell anybody this, but you've responded so well to treatment, like, you're going to recover, and it's, you're going to have, like, full recovery. This is unbelievable how you've responded to this. And doctors try not to use the word recovery. Um, and then they went in, I think, for another checkup, probably like a month later, and everything had gone wrong. Nothing that the doctors would have predicted did predict. It happened. Like, and the doctor said, your body's riddled with this, and it's terminal. goes from total recovery 
They think of all the emotional roller coaster that you're on. We're, we've got cancer. How are we going to deal with this? And then all of a sudden, doctors are like this. Your body's responding amazingly. This is incredible. And then you're terminal. Like like it's done. And he said it was so hard. He said, but it was one of the most. He he said that they started thinking, and he was especially thinking like, man, God, what's your grand purpose in all? There's got to be a grand purpose for all this. Maybe you'll do a miracle, and I'm praying for it. Uh, but it, no matter what happens, I know you've got some huge purpose in this. And, and then he's, he said he started watching his wife in this, and she had been introverted and, you know, like reaching out and, and, um, and uh, initiating with people wasn't like her go-to. But he said in the middle of the chemo, in the middle of like the terminal, in the middle of the worst day of the worst season of their life, all of a sudden he saw her, he said she bloomed. She started blooming. She would see the new people who had never gone through chemo and they were about to lose their hair and they were scared and didn't know what, to, what this was going to be about. She would run up to them and she would meet them, say hi, and she'd sit with them as they were doing chemo and she'd answer their questions. What this is going to be like? What's going to happen? He's like, she hadn't, that, that hadn't been her, her MO before. And then like, she, she would encourage the nurses and encourage other people. He's like, she bloomed, she blossomed in the middle of the darkness. And he was like, it was so so hard but also so beautiful and and he started seeing the hidden treasure in the darkness he he, he said this to me he said um, i realized that when god doesn't heal us or help us when we are in the dark in a dark place it means that he has a reason for us being there and we should be watching for the opportunities to help others and that that's i mean that's good that is, that is tank to, take to the bank good when you are going through hardship or someone else is going through it. If you're going through it and God doesn't immediately alleviate it and, and we're in this broken world and God's not the one who's like, he's not the one who's like, I'm going to give you cancer. Like we're in this broken, awful world and God's redeeming this thing. He's going to redeem it. He turns bad to good. But I love how he says it. It means that he has a reason for us being there and that we should be watching for opportunities to help others even while we're in the middle of it. He found hidden treasure. When Sarah and I were going through the worst day of our life, we, some of you guys know this, we lost our twins at 21 weeks of, of the pregnancy. And, um, and we were just, it was just a really hard season, dark season. I didn't preach that. I didn't preach for a, uh, a few weeks, actually. And I remember um, the Sunday after we had, the event had happened and we got the news and we were just like blindsided, you know, just processing Pastor Scott and some of the leaders brought all these letters from you, from our church. And we had like over 100 letters from people that were just like, hey, we're with you. We love you. There's people that were like, we went through this. I totally. And they were describing their, the emotions I was feeling. They're like, we went through this, this, this. We're here. We love you. It was incredible. We always teach and preach and like, and we try to live as a community. Like we are a place of belonging, inclusion, and love. But you guys, I experienced the belonging and love of our church firsthand in that moment. My wife experienced that moment. It was a hidden treasure in a sense. We met people who, who ministered to us in ways um, that are, it's hard to put into language what it meant to us. Hidden treasure in the darkness. Um, Matthew 6.33 says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the rest will be provided for you. Seek the kingdom. There's this principle in scripture that we orient our lives around what we see. 
we orient, I think this is just true about humans, we orient our lives around the thing that we have, we, we look at the most, we focus on, the, the thing that we, our vision is, is captured by. And um, do you see the stars in the midst of the darkness? Have you been able, whatever your season is, maybe you've been, it was a season a long time ago, but you're still, like, you've never left that worst day. Like, there's part of you that's still sitting in that. Will you let God reorient your vision today? Like, you can, like, that would be my prayer. Like, you, you, can, you can reorient that today. It doesn't mean all the problems go away, but the focus changes, and there's, there's hope again. There's vision again. Like, we, David could have stayed bitter, he could have stayed sad, or he could have gotten more bitter with his with his men and just, but he turned his eyes to the Lord. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. He had a vision, very specific. He, I love the quote. He says, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. What he's saying is like, I see a better future. I, I can imagine what the Lord has for us. And he was able, think about this, in the, the, his era, in his day and age, there had been a pattern of racial hatred and, and bigotry and segregation. And no one, in, in, in pockets of the country, no one could even imagine that changing ever. And, and, and certain people saw by, they thought by the color of your skin, it dictated your, your value, your intelligence, your worth, your status. And, and these people are here and these people are there. And, and he had a vision, a dream that was different than the people around him. And he clung to it over and over again. He led with this vision. And it's incredible to me that it, despite the darkness of the world around him, he could see the stars that, that God, he could see that the, scriptures painted a vision of freedom and racial reconciliation that the world hadn't lived into yet and he didn't let the reality of the the situation the brutal reality keep him from seeing the hope of the gospel for full racial reconciliation that's leadership and that inspired a nation he believed it preached it cast it dreamed it over and over until someone snuffed his life out but the vision of God continued on, and the beauty of the gospel, friends, is that God begins restoring people like through time and through history, and, and people began living into that vision, and just like Jesus, when people put him on the cross and killed him, it made his message even stronger. And Martin Luther King Jr., we, we're celebrating that now as a country. That would have been unimaginable. Back in his, day, his time. His dream, his vision has lived on because it's God's dream. Let me ask you this. Where is your vision oriented for your life? Do you have God's dream? Are you, have you given up on it? Have you let go of the hope of recovery? Have you given up for the hope of like... What, what, what God has put in you because of the brutal reality of the worst day of your life. Have you let that snuff out your vision? Because I'm telling you, you can't let it happen. You can't let it happen. It's that simple. You let the circumstances snuff out God's word, God's vision, God's kingdom in your life. Like, like it'll determine how your, your relationships go, your heart goes. Don't do it. Seek first the kingdom Here's the other thing you can put in your notes. Look through the lens of the kingdom. 
when we're talking about vision, sometimes we, we need to have our vision corrected a little bit. When I take my glasses off, um, I can only see a blurry, beautiful you. Some of you are even better looking. Um, some worse. But when, I say, when I'm talking about looking through the lens of the gospel, this is really important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's really important. It's, the, it's learning to put the lens, lenses of the kingdom on to see a new reality. The Bible is meant to be lenses that we look through. And I, I kind of call this the windshield principle. Um, when I was, you know, we, I've told you guys how we would travel up and down California when we first moved up here, visit family, and we'd go through Fresno, Bakersfield, go through all those hot valleys, and, and then drive back up, and we'd go all the way down to Southern California, sometimes San, uh, San Diego even, and we were driving back up one time, we're in a real rural area, and there's all this, you know, corn and everything, and all of a sudden, all these bugs started hitting the windshield, pop, 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 pop. and my dad's like turning on the windshield wipers with the fluid, it's just mixing the guts even worse on the, you know, if some of you guys are real like, bu- you know, empathy for bugs and stuff, this is a terrible story, but the bugs were just, I mean, they were just dying, we were just this killing machine of bugs, and pop, 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 pop. my dad's like, look at that bug, look at that bug, and he's like so fascinated with the bugs, he's looking at the windshield and pointing them out, and all of a and the car starts like swerving. We hit like, my mom's like, look at the road. And, and all the us in the back were like, look at the road. And my dad's like, bug, bug, bug. And we're like, no. Have you ever driven with someone who's looking at the windshield? <laughs> the windshield is designed to be looked through, is it not? To look through. And I'm like, dad, you're good at looking at the windshield. But the most important part is looking through it. I'm going to come back to that. In the Bible, there's these figures called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees struggled with, like, they were always seeing sin as sickness. And I want to separate myself from that. And they would condemn the sinner. And they're like, they're sick with sin, so they, I can't be around them. I don't want to be infected. And they were like, the way we help is telling people how sinful they are, putting more guilt on them, and just saying, you need to do better and try harder. But they had this self-righteous thing going on because the more that they judged and condemned other people, the more they were, self-righteousness is like lifting yourself up at other people's expense. Like, I'm, ugh, thank God I'm not like that person. Thank God I'm not like that person. And so it became this really judgmental, um, religious activity. And they were just teaching people how to manage their sins, but they could never be quite as good as them. Um, now let me ask you a question. What is, they were the religious leaders of the day. What is a Pharisee's primary job? What is a, if you were a Christian, or back in those days, you know, the, if you're a, a Jew, what is the religious leader's job? To lead people spiritually. To help people hear God's voice. To help people know God and to live a life with God, right? Like, it's not that complex. But they were putting all these things in front of people that were preventing them from really understanding the, the, the loving Father and felt like, I can't do this, I'm not good enough. And they're putting, Jesus called it, you're putting weight and more weight on them and just weighing them down and you're not lifting a finger. Your job is to lead them and you're hurting them. You're spiritually abusing people. So why does the Pharisee, and I'm telling you, Pharisees live today, they live in, and there's churches that can be struggling with this and Really, it's just human ideology. Anybody who, who believes in like policies being more important than people will struggle with this. But the question is, why did the Pharisees miss their job? Why did the Pharisees see Jesus 
and not, they, they saw him as sin, as blasphemy, as an enemy, and they didn't see that he was the gift of God. He was the son of God. How did they miss that? Because they used the Bible as a windshield to look at, not through. They began worshiping the Bible more than the one who created it and wrote it. They started worshiping this very thing that they could, they could get power from. And if we, we, like, we can lift ourselves up and we get our, this power and control. And, and they started, instead of looking through the windshield, instead of looking through the Bible to see the reality of God, and to see his spirit at work in the lives of people, to see God's grace at work, it became this static thing that was in front of them. They were looking at it. Uh, like at the windshield and like all the cool things of scripture and, did you, and the arguments and the questions about the Bible. And did you know this? And did you know this? And this cool thing and this cool nugget. There, This bug, splat, this bug, whap, 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 whap. They're looking at all the bugs. They're looking at the, at the windshield and they couldn't see Jesus. The Bible was a promise. It's a prophecy about the son of God coming to earth. And they loved the Bible so much they couldn't see the author of the Bible right in front of them. Are you guys with me? We have to look through the lens of Scripture, the lens of the kingdom, to see the kingdom. So all of a sudden we can start seeing those moments like Lee's talking about where kingdom, like my wife, started to bloom in the middle of her death. When we lose our our twins, God, you are so good to us. You're with us every step of the way. There is treasure to be found. There is kingdom to be sought. There is a reality to be seen. Are you, do you have the right lenses on? Or are you looking through the lenses or looking at the windshield or whatever ideology, political, conservative, liber, you know, uh, liberal, uh, uh, your family, uh, uh, your job, the lens that, that the world tells you is the most important thing? Are you letting God give you the lens of the kingdom? I love Hebrews says this, let us throw off everything that hinders, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And listen here, mark this in your Bibles if you have them out. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Pharisees couldn't see Jesus. They killed him. They killed him. He was an offense to them. He was sin to them. And they loved the Bible. The Bible is just a signpost pointing us to God. It is not an idol to be worshipped. I don't want to miss Jesus and what he's doing now. God is at work in this world. The Bible is so crucial, so important to help us see and understand the patterns of how God works. We're looking at scripture. But our, our goal is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. Amen? Here's the, here's the next thing on your notes. Let Jesus restore your sight. Let Jesus restore your sight. I love this story in Mark. It says this. They, they came from Bethsaida, Jesus and his disciples. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him because they knew he could heal him. So he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. And when they had sp- he spit on the man's eyes, Jesus spit on his eyes. You see the disciples being, Jesus got this. They've seen him heal the blind man. Then Jesus, they've never seen him spit. They're like, it's a special healing, this one. (laughs) Spits on his eyes and then puts his hands on him. And Jesus asked, do you see anything? And then he looked up and he said, I see people. But they kind of look like trees walking around. 
So his vision's still blurred. He's not seeing with full clarity. And so once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes again. And then his eyes were opened. And his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Clearly. I just love this story. You can imagine um, this blind man who's been healed walking a few months later. Because in a few chapters over, there's another man named Blind Bartimaeus who gets healed too. And there you can see them talking and and uh, blind Bartimaeus came to Jesus and, and said, heal me. And Jesus was like, you're healed. Like it was a one-step process, not a two. You can see him talking and you can see the, this guy being like, hey, you remember when Jesus healed us? How amazing that was. Like you were blind, I was blind. And remember how Jesus just like <sighs> spit into our eyes? And you're like, what is going on? And why would you spit into a blind man's eyes? That's terrible, you know? And he's like, and then I remember the disciples, you know, whispering, like, maybe Jesus is having an off day or something, like, because my, my, our vision was blurry. Remember when our, our vision was blurry, and then he put his hands on us a second time and healed us? And you can see the other blind man just looking at him and be like, no, I, I don't remember that at all. Like, he just, he just said, you're healed. And the guy's like, oh, you must not have been healed right then. And uh, that was the creation of denominations. No, it's a one-step process. <laughs> It's two. I'm telling you, it's two. That's where it happened. I'm telling you. But in this moment, in this moment, in the book of Mark, Jesus and Mark, the author, are actually giving us like, like the hinge of discipleship, the way, the way Mark sees it. And it's a metaphor for a disciple. It's a metaphor for anyone who follows Jesus. It's a metaphor for the whole book of Mark that we start fully blind, not knowing who Jesus is. Disciples didn't know fully who Jesus is. And then as they're working with Jesus, walking with Jesus, all of a sudden their vision starts being healed and they, they, they see Jesus a little bit better, but it's still blurry. And it's not until, like in the book of Mark, it's not until the cross, when Jesus dies on the cross, and a Gentile, non-Jewish centurion looks up and sees the clouds, feels the rocking of the earth. When he dies, there's this powerful moment. And he says, surely this is the Son of God. That He has full sight. And it's that moment where, like, where Jesus is teaching us and Mark is trying to teach us that the, the, the gift of sight sometimes requires God to come in and rupture our blind, broken world and heal our eyes. And sometimes it's a process. Like All of a sudden we're like, whoa, it's still blurry. And then we go from blind to blurry and we're still trying to figure this out. And then all of a sudden, full clarity comes. And to be honest, friends, from my life, that, that kind of happens over and over. Like I was blind to this thing about God. And then all of a sudden I'm blurry. I'm starting to get it. And then all of a sudden clarity happens. How many of you guys can relate to that discipleship journey? Doesn't it make you feel better? Like, oh man, I'm not the only one over here. I'm not the only one here. Any of you guys have spouses that will have blind, you know, and then they'll blurry and maybe they'll get clear? Don't tell them. It's okay. They're on a journey. Sometimes we just need to say, God, would you, would you just wreck my world? Like, I'm blind. I, like, I need a miracle. Like David, just come up, God, what do I do? I've lost everything. Everything. And I've followed you. I've lost everything. Give me a word. God says, pursue him. You'll recover. Sight. Vision. And then he steps out to his men and he leads them. He says, guys, you don't have to follow me, but this is what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to go get our, our, our families back. We're going to recover. The last thing I have for you, you can throw this on your notes, it's a question. Can you see recovery? Can you see recovery? Like, I think that kind of gets to the heart of it. 1 Samuel 38 says, you will, you will surely recover everything that was taken from you. David was given this promise, you will recover. I mean, you've got to step out in faith. You've got to go after it. You can't just sit here in bitterness or sit here in the spiritual moment. You've got to go. I'll be with you and you'll recover everything. You'll recover it. Can you see your recovery? Some of you guys are in the worst day, the worst moment of your life. Some of you have been there. It's still lingering. Your friends and family would say you're not the same. And it's not like you're ever the same, but you, the you, your heart isn't back. It took, my wife was in chronic pain for five years. It took about six years for her to fully come back. She would, she would tell you that. Um, Sometimes our heart gets stolen from us. And the bitterness starts to seep in. Um, and we can't see our recovery. And we, can't, we, can't rem- we struggle remembering God's word when we're in the darkness. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that God wants you to recover? Do you believe that God wants you to recover? I grew up in a church... That was real scared of like um, people who were like, everything's going to be great. Everything's victorious. And Jesus wins everything. Nothing's bad. Nothing's evil. And so they had this fear of that. So we had created, there was this like emphasis, like you have to have a theology of suffering. Like everything's suffering. Like it's like this life is suffering and then heaven comes and it might be better. And that, you know, there was, not everyone was like that, but there was an underlying theme. It's this suffering. And, and, and the Bible says there's a tension. Remember the tension we talked about of looking at the brutal facts, the brutal reality, but having hope that we will prevail, like that, that like I'm not going to give up. And the Bible, I think one of the best descriptions of that is in, in Hebrews 12, 2. It, it says this, For the joy set before him. He endured the cross. It's talking about Jesus. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And there's a tension there between cross and joy. And I was in a community that emphasized like it's cross, it's darkness, it's like pain. And you have to have a, and they were skeptical of anything that said, hey, God really wants you to recover. They're like, well, that's health and wealth, which is kind of a, if you're not familiar with that term, it's like a type of theology that says you can just name what you want and claim it. And then you can have anything. If you just have the faith, you'll get it. And if, and if you don't get what you, what you've been praying for and you feel you deserve, uh, then you, you don't have enough faith. And so like, it, it creates like this weird humanistic, self-centered type of theology. But there is a, a, gr- a grain of truth in it. We are supposed to have faith. And, and there is recovery. But because we're afraid of being like too, like we can't look to the joy, we're going to stay at the cross. We're going to stay at the suffering. And there are people that are over here and won't acknowledge that. And Jesus, it, the, he is the best example. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, that he went through darkness that he absorbed the, all the hell that you and I deserved. He absorbed into himself, not because he was just going to remain in suffering, but because there was joy set before him. What's the joy? 
He was going to have fully restored um, relationship with the Father. Like the, his, his, um, his standing with the Father would be fully restored. He wasn't going to be, you know, in this place on the cross. He was going to be at the right hand of the Father. He was going to be glorified, lifted up, worshipped. And the biggest thing, what's the biggest reason that God sent his son to earth? To seek and to save that which was lost. To bring the family home. For those who would come with him, for those who would trust him and say, man, your victory, I'll take that. He would restore us to the Father. That's the joy. The joy for Jesus that that he was willing to go to the cross for was you and me. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? And um, some of us, I think... I think we struggle to believe that God wants us to recover. I think we struggle to believe that Jesus went through the cross so we didn't have to in the same way he did. He died for all our sins. We couldn't be perfect. He was perfect. Jesus went to the cross so that we could experience joy with him. Do you believe that God wants you to recover? And as Christians, we have to look at the long game. We know like there's going to be seasons like, you know, Admiral... um, Stockdale is eight years in prison. Eight years. And some of us, have. To, we need to ask the question, what is the me I'm going to be in 10 years? Who am I becoming? And, and will I allow God to use this to shape me for, for good, even in the worst of circumstances? And if you're a Christian, if you're a person who believes that, that you are eternally now walking with God no matter what you're going through, and you could have the worst rest of your life, but if you think about this, what's the next 100 years? What's the next 200 years? What's the next 1,000 years? Are you going to recover? You will have an eternity with God shaping you, continuing to grow you. But the recovery comes in the full bloom of the kingdom of God. And as your pastor, sometimes I, I fail at talking about that enough. But the reason we have hope is because we get to look forward to an eternity in the kingdom of God. And nothing will outlast the kingdom of God. So let me finish with this. Um, we were in college and I was taking guys surfing we drove down to a place in California called Morro Bay to, to go surfing and right before we got there it was late at night it was like two in the morning we had driven all day all night we had three cars there's a whole caravan of people and uh, we got to the foothills this is before uh, cell phones and you know any kind of uh, technology direction and um, I was basically going off a of memory from when I was a kid I was like here's where we go and and we were in these foothills, and we hit this dense fog in the, at night, like 2 in the morning. Couldn't see, like, a foot in front of you. So thick. And as we started traveling, you're going up these windy paths, up these, up these foothills. And, like, and I knew, like, past the foothills, past this fog, there is the beautiful beach. It's coming. And there are a few other people that have been there before. But most of the people who hadn't been there before were getting antsy. They're like, I think we're going the wrong way. Because, again, we didn't have, you know, our cellular devices. And they're like, George, we're going the wrong way. There's even one car that pulled over and got out all mad. I'm not going a foot further. Like, you don't know where you're going. And like, it was like this madness set in, like with the fog. And I'm like, no, there is an ocean out there. We're going to get to it. And I just remember like, we got back in the car. I'm like, we're going, (laughs) you know, and they finally got in their mat. One car was like swerving with their lights, like wanting us to pull over. And like, you know, I remember it was getting toward the end there. And like all these people were arguing in the car. You know, it was like, it's emotional. It's college, right? And, uh. (laughs) And all of a sudden, in the midst of this darkness fog, I mean, you couldn't see anything. Boom, it just like broke. And 
it was amazing, like full moon, like shining off the ocean right in front of us, waves crashing on the beach. Like you could see the moon, like the, the, just that beam, like reflecting off all the waves. The stars were out. It was beautiful. And it was just like everything went silent and just went calm. My prayer for you, it's like David, that you'd be able to recognize when you're in the fog and in the darkness That the joy is still before you. Do you believe that God wants you to recover? That you will recover? Do you have the lenses of the kingdom? Will you let God heal your your eyesight through Jesus? And will you reorient your vision to see the stars, the moon, the ocean? Will you keep that in your heart and head even when you're in the fog? So that you don't miss the treasures that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. Give us vision. Amen.